Greetings and salutations. My name is Tyler Ellenick, and this is Raven Drool, the podcast who chronicles all things 90s can rock. This episode is the second half of my chat with Ian Brown, the drummer of Coquitlam, British Columbia's Matthew Goodband. And just to continue our chat here, I mean, what was kind of Matt Good like to hang out with in those days? I mean, what is the band doing? Off stage, are you guys hanging out? Are you having beers together? You know, playing video games? Can you kind of give us some insight into that aspect of the group? It was difficult. I mean, he, Matt was a very difficult guy to kind of relax around. Like yeah. it, it, he, he had to always be kind of holding court, and hmm. it was it was sort of like we had fun moments when we paired off with other people. And I mean, I remember us having fun, like but the best time I, I had with Matt was really like on stage. You know what I mean? Like it, that, that was, it still kind of is my, it was, I feel like it was such a shame that we never got to go back and play some of that stuff together. Like it's never going to happen now. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, it's, uh, it, it's a sort of a shame because I really think that a lot of the stage stuff was so exciting and it was so, so great to be in a group like that, that just had so much energy. And I just, it was, you know, it was like uh, like landing a 747 or something like that back there behind the drums. It was like a real, <laughs> real powerful feeling of, you know, driving that stuff. And, but that was the best part of it. Like all the, you know, the bus and the, you know, it, it, it was always kind of like, he was just, he was just a very temperamental and uh, it wasn't, it was, it was sometimes a little bit stressful actually, because, you know, you, you kind of was over, always worried about his health and his meant you know, his, his mental state and, you know, and, uh, you know, so it was, uh, it was, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't like a fun drinking cards kind of bus tour, but we did have fun. We did have fun <laughs> and it was to be on a bus and we were amazing shows. Some of the shows were amazing. Like that's like, I still, you know, it was great to roll up in a, in a, you know, you got your, your bus tour and then you stop and you play for thousands of people and you get back on the bus. I mean, Jesus. You know, I, I, if, I, if anything, I just wish I could just have enjoyed it more at the mm-hmm. time. You know, I probably would. It, it, it's sort of interesting. I wasn't really partying really at the time either. I was just like so serious about what we were doing. And mm-hmm. like, uh, so that probably made a difference to, uh, I guess, kind of good not to party too much, right? That's fair. Good. Like I said, you're, you're getting into some detail, which I don't think I've ever, some of the stuff I haven't really thought about. So it's kind of a. Uh, yeah, I love the detail, man. It just, it was just fascinating to me. So. And I promise we'll move on to some funner stuff. But while we're kind of on uh, Matt Good's kind of mercurial personality and his kind of combativeness with certain things, um, he got in a couple of beefs along the way, most notably with Our Lady Peace and kind of Nickelback. Now I'm curious. Now, how does that affect you guys as other bandmates in that band? I mean, do you guys also get painted with that brush? I mean, do you find yourself having to defend his comments or defend the band? We, I never got accused of being, you know, the, the weird thing about it is that, like, no, I don't think anybody thought that we hated, like, collectively hated Our Lady Peace. But I do think that we got painted with the Matt Good brush. Like, mm-hmm. we kind of got a reputation of being kind of difficult or being kind of combative or, you know, the type of thing that was because of more about because of him. Mm-hmm. 
But the, the, the beefs, I thought, I think this is basically, it was all just a publicity stunt in a lot of it, right? Mm. Like, I kind of thought the thing about Larry Lady Goose was sort of funny. <laughs> I think they kind of thought it was a bit funny, right? Like, it was just sort of like, you know, sort of a funny thing to pick a beef with a band on the other side of the country. And it just makes for good press. It's kind of like what the British bands used to do. Right, right like, yeah. You know, good point. Uh, you know, you just say, like, oh, they're, sh- they're shit or whatever, you know. But the Nickelback thing, that was like years later. That was like two years later or something. Like yeah. It seemed like it was, it was closer to when things were starting to implode and he was starting to make some bad decisions. I just remember thinking that is a, that's a not a good decision. <laughs> you know, like to go, you got, because you, basically Chad, Chad Kruger, like they tried to open for us, but we just didn't think they were very good. Oh, wow. Like we just didn't like their music. <laughs> they were super nice guys. And they, you could tell they were like really dedicated, you know, and like they wanted, they wanted to open shows for us. And we just, I think some, we just weren't really on board with what they were doing musically, which makes no sense really. I mean, who cares? <laughs> but then, you know, Chad gets, they start to go places and then he gets interviewed in Rolling Stone or something. And he says, what's your top, num- you know, number one unsigned Canadian or your number one unknown Canadian band here in the States. And he mentions Matt. And then Matt turns around and says, you know, whatever he says about Chad and, and pisses them off. And it's like another sort of self-sabotage type thing. Like, why don't I just take the compliment? He was determined not to get anything to happen in the States. And, Interesting. You know, yeah, I think like. It's fascinating because a lot of times people ask, why, why not this band, this Canadian band? Why didn't they get big down there? And a lot of times it's not their fault necessarily, but it appears that, it, it, you know, some of it was, like you said, self-sabotage when it comes to the Matthew Good Band as to why they never broke south of the border. So it's kind of interesting that it's might be a unique case as far as 90s Canadian bands go, I think. Yeah, it's funny because, like, most people want that opportunity and then when you get it, you can't believe it, we get, to, we get to try, you know, and we, we were given more opportunity than you could even imagine, really, hmm. to do something down there. Like, yeah, I mean, I think that being on Atlantic, Atlantic didn't have a lot of groups. They, they were going to push us, like, we were in the top two or three bands on their roster at the time. Hmm. And when we said no to that Matchbox 20 tour, they put us out on, on the road on our own in the States where nobody knew who we were. Like, knowing it was going to not work. Hmm. So we went and played, you know, whatever, 300 seat clubs for no people, basically. Right. Just made no sense. And did that have an effect on your psyche, knowing you're playing to thousands in Canada and now, you know, a few hundred in the States? I think it made more, like, I think, because Dave was a, little, a couple years older than me, and mm. I think he really could see that this was, you know, this was the beginning of, like, we weren't going to be in control of our own destiny as long as we had Matt making decisions like this based on kind of like, um, you know, I don't know what you call that, not wanting to open for a, a band in your own home country because you're bigger than them, whatever you want to call that. Yeah. It's not a sound business decision. You know, it, it's, right. it's like, a, so then when you start making decisions based on your, your gut or your ego or whatever you want to call it, then, and you're not thinking about making the most of that opportunity. You can't see the, the pros and cons and go take the, you know, like then you're on a train heading on the wrong track. You know what I mean? Mm. So, I, I don't. I don't know. I, I think I would have. I would have stuck it out. But you know, I think Matt basically had a feeling that, you know, the the band is. It's not the band. It's me. It's been me the whole time. Right, like right. It hasn't had anything to do with these other guys. It's me. The whole thing is me, kind of thing. Mm. So, yeah. Well, we can we can change gears though. And um, after Underdogs, you guys had um, a lineup change where Jeff left the band and, and Rich came in for Beautiful Midnight. 
what was that transition like? Do you know why Jeff decided to kind of part ways? And what was it like now working with Rich? I mean, you know, the bass and drums are, are pretty symbiotic when it comes to a rock band. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Jeff, I think, just didn't didn't really enjoy the culture of that group. Like, mm. I, I was, I wanted to make it, and I wanted to be in a successful band. I would, I would have sold my soul to the devil to, you know, have an opportunity like that kind of thing. Yeah. I could say I, I kind of did, but anyway... <laughs> It was a big change. I think Jeff just basically, I don't think that he ever really got the respect. Like from, you know, I, I think I watch videos of him playing with us now and I think this is the guy that is interesting to see on stage. He, mm. he is the guy that is, you, you watch him and he's he's solid is all anything, but he's also got a lot of flair. Mm. And there's uh, something that he brings to the table that I don't think we fully were appreciative of at the time. So, and uh he was a sensitive guy, and I don't think he really enjoyed the culture of the group. It was kind of competitive and, mm. uh, you know, this type of thing. So I think he just kind of got, didn't really feel like he wanted to do it anymore. And it's too bad he left at the absolute worst wrong time because we just started to kind of start to see a little bit of, you know, we started getting paid a little bit. You know, yeah. and he missed out on a lot of, he did all the legwork and then never really got, got to reap the reward. Mm-hmm. So it was it was it was a shame that and, and I, I I still think about I, I still think about Jeff because he really was the a huge part of why we got from 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 A to B like from nothing to something was because of him you know what I mean mm. but then uh, when Rich came in I mean we we didn't really look at a lot of bass players but the guys that we looked at they you know Rich was the, the guy that had played in bands with Dave. I'd seen them. I'd seen him perform a lot, and he was just like an absolute tank of a bass player, like mm. just an immovable object. And I always kind of thought this is the kind of guy that we should, especially as we started getting heavier, like we were kind of playing heavier music, and we wanted to play you know, louder, heavier music. And uh, you know, Silverchair was sort of a thing, and Nirvana, and you know, like mm-hmm. so Jeff was I mean or Rich was sort of gonna fit the bill more for that type of thing, but you know, he, he wasn't able to do a lot of the stuff that Jeff did. Like Jeff had a lot more kind of like bounce or kind of a little bit more of a swing in his playing or something. Mm, interesting. But uh but yeah, but Rich is just this grinding eights type bass player and super tight. His timing is really great. So it, it, it helped certain songs and other ones didn't it, you know, it kind of you know, it just was a different direction in music. It didn't hurt it for sure because he we did some great stuff yeah, with, absolutely. Rich, with Rich. But then as a personality, Rich was another guy that was sort of business-minded and was trying to kind of make the most of it from a business perspective as well. So it wasn't like... A, there were a lot of like conflicting uh, interests in that group. And Rich basically, I think, had a, a pretty big hand in kind of telling Matt, you know, hey, you should just forget about this isn't a band, this is a solo project. And, huh. you know, like... So that's Rich stuck around for another album or two, and then uh, and he got turfed as well. But that's interesting. I was I was wondering because I, I recently, um, like even last night, I watched the uh, much more music story of the Matthew Good Band. And one thing I did notice was once Rich was in the band, you know, there was a lot of interviews with just him and Matt. It seemed like yeah. they might have had a tighter relationship or something like that. So it's interesting that you say that. Yeah, I, don't, I think it was sort of like, you know, you were never going to, your stock was never going to be higher with Matt than when you first met. <laughs> you know, it it, it kind of like, uh, I think maybe with Dave and I, it was like the bloom was off the rose by that point, whereas like, Rich was a new, uh, 
uh, a bit of fresh meat for the grinder kind of thing. <laughs> and Rich was a cool guy. You know, he, he was good at interviews. He wouldn't he wouldn't overdo it. He would say something funny and stay out of the way. Uh, and so he was probably good to have on interviews. But yeah, I think it was sort of more the novelty factor. I think a lot of it, right? And then once the novelty wears off, then you're kind of uh, in with the pack again. I think right, right, sort of right. how it's made. But, yeah. Anyhow, you mentioned Silverchair there just a moment ago. Um, now, we didn't touch on this yet, but you guys were a massive part of VegFest in the 90s, of which Silverchair was also a part of. What were your mm-hmm. memories of VegFest when you look back on those days? I mean, that kind of traveling circus going province to province with all those huge international and Canadian acts. Yeah, it was, that was uh, something. I mean, the first the first VegFest that we played, we were actually on the B stage. Hmm. And I think, like, the food, the food fighters, and uh, they were on a stage. I remember actually we played Barrie, Ontario, Molson Park there, and um, going to see Sloan from backstage when they played mm. to their audience, basically because it's in Ontario. And I just was like, holy smokes, like 18,000 people. And mm. I think this is when, you know, City Maniacs came out. So it was like all their kind of like ACDC type stuff, right? Right, but right. It was incredible. Like, it, I mean, and, and, and then of course, then you play Vancouver, and everybody's like looking at Sloan, like, and Sloan would Sloan would play the they would play so well in Ontario, and then you'd see them play in Vancouver, and they sounded so crappy. It was like so. <laughs> I feel like it was like watching two different bands most of the time. I saw that happen a couple of times. I was just like, what are these guys doing? They actually covered uh, taking care of business in Vancouver oh, really? as an ode to uh, BTO. Yeah, to BTO because it's like a Vancouver thing in their mind, I guess. But I don't know, it's just hilarious. That's awesome. But uh, yeah, but then you know, like we met Courtney Love, and you know, because it was her birthday in Calgary at the show in Calgary, huh. so you know, we hung out with her and like you know this type of thing, and like there's other things like yeah, I mean, like that type of thing is just doesn't feel like it's ever going to happen again. Like you know, like like yeah. somebody there's some jokes floating around about the Warp Tour. And and I feel like Edgefest was bigger than Warp Tour. Like mm-hmm. it was, it was like it, there were twenty thousand people in every city in Canada. They were, coming. yeah, it was crazy. It was amazing. They played Commonwealth Stadium, and it was like some of the shows were huge, and they had to put on a second day or whatever, you know? Like, yeah. So and it was all like and it was very well packaged, you know, that they had those American bands and and then had Canadian bands mm-hmm. up against, and then you could kind of see. Then we would be measuring our quality level against these groups that were Absolutely. You know, international. You know, so. and it really showed that you know Canadian bands hold their own they're as good or better than some of the big international acts of the day I mean for the first time Edge Fest and things like Big Shiny Tunes when you put you know international bands on side by side Canadian bands it's not there's not a discrepancy in quality yeah yeah exactly yeah and yeah like Big Shiny Tunes is a perfect uh, perfect example of that but this is even more because mm-hmm might be able to make a good sounding track that holds up against other tracks right. but to go and actually see the group live That's right. and be like you know i liked these top these are my favorite groups that i saw at edge fest yeah. and two of the five are canadian that's, that's right. huge right i mean mm-hmm. that's like uh, and i remember um we did two years of edge fest at least i think we did it we did 98 and 99 i'm pretty sure i don't think we did i don't think there was one in 2000 i'm not sure it stopped by then yeah yeah, so 98 and 99, and like, so 98, we were sort of newcomers, and we were playing the B stage, and then 99, we were a lot more established, but we right, still right, weren't right. able to do what Tea Party was doing.
But did it, was it a, a big deal for you to, um, meaning as a drummer, to kind of be on tour with Foo Fighters? To kind of, I mean, did you get to interact with Dave Grohl? Are you a fan yeah, of his? Yeah, I mean, was I, it a big I, deal I, for you? I kept wanting to, yeah, I kept wanting to run into Dave Grohl for sure. Like, yeah. I, I think kind of saw him backstage watching something at the same time I was and stuff, but didn't really introduce myself or anything. But right, yeah, he right. wasn't really, they were just kind of getting going. Like this is yeah. before, you know, any of the big, but I got really into the first Foods record, actually, the one with, um, where he doesn't even play drums on it. The one with the gun on the cover, the self-title? Yeah, that one. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was really into that record. I, I thought it was really cool and, and kind of quirky and I really liked it. And uh, I'm just trying to think of, you know, Billy Joe Armstrong and Trey Cool and that group, you know, like, what are they? It's uh, Green Day. Green, Green Day, Day headline. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I, I remember watching them quite a bit because they used to, they were burning their drums set yeah. off stage every day. Yeah, that's right. And then the, the, the drum tech would come out and they weren't putting a new drum set on stage every night. They would just cover the burn marks with like stickers and stuff. <laughs> He was playing a burned drum set. <laughs> That's over the time. It was like hilarious. It was just like that's so funny. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, then they were they were like you know they were obviously bringing the house down and they were such good performers and yeah, we we were like really influenced by the sound a lot of the time. Like we'd be like, it just sounds so huge. Like it was you know we had a really good front of house technician and we started getting into these more sort of arena sized sounds. Like silver chair sounded incredible. Like it was just like gigantic sounding. Mm. Like. And uh, so we started trying to kind of get more of that type of sound to play through big PAs. And that was really fun too, like just getting gigantic drum sounds. They started blending microphones with triggers. And, and you know, sometimes I would hit a bass drum and it would actually blow the fuse for the entire building. Like, <laughs> wow. It happened more than once huh. where was, like, the, the lights would go out. You know, I heard a bass drum and it would be like, <laughs> the lights would go out. It was incredible. It was like, yeah, we had our our, our our live tech, Kenny Clipper and Ken Turta, who would always be pushing things to the absolute limit. Uh, you know, just crazy. So, yeah, there was a lot of a lot of cool things about playing those shows where, you know, just even to play a big stage yeah. outdoors. And it's a, it's a totally different thing than playing a enclosed stage, you know, like mm-hmm. it, the, the sound just flies off everywhere. You get wind. Like we played one show where the wind actually blew the symbols like all oh, wow. over on me, and and we played some crazy. We you know we the, the, we played the snow job a couple of times too, where it was like literally snowing on the drums, you know, like uh, so. Yeah, it's just kind of cool experiences just playing some of those big shows and stuff. Is there like a lot of camaraderie between you and other bands? I mean, a lot of hanging out, kind of jamming, or having beers, or or what have you? Yeah, like we we I remember we kind of hung out a bit with the big rack guys. And, oh yeah, you know Dave and I and uh, Ian and I remember us hanging out with different people on the tour. I really liked Big Rack's drummer actually. They got Forrest, who I thought was just I still think he's. A, I don't know what happened to that guy, but he was amazing. He, he got some of the most Bonham type sounds of anybody I've ever uh, seen before or since actually. But and there's just yeah a lot of a lot of like trying to think of. But it's sort of funny, you know, like nowadays everybody's all friends, like all the bands are all friends and it's kind of more, you know, inclusive and more kind of embracing of everybody. But back then it was kind of like, you know, you were trying to be better than the other band. You were trying to, we, we would, you know, that's why we'd be like, you know, screw Our Lady Peace. They're a bunch of fake, they're like a boy band or whatever. And it would be like, you know, or, or, or Connelly and Crush, like it would always be like, we were trying to, like, we just 
trying to kind of play better than the bands from our own city or huh. try to kind of be the king of the hill or whatever. Right. And it seems kind of silly now because you just kind of think like it would be, it would be great if everybody could just have their success and it wouldn't be competitive. But there was something about the competition between bands yeah. and the competition between us in the band huh. even. It kind of pushed it. It pushed it up, you know, to another level. Like if everybody's just getting along and everything's all friendly yeah, all the exactly. time, it doesn't necessarily push it to the, to the highest level, you know? Before we move off of festival type gigs, uh, there's one particular one that uh, I need to discuss, being that I'm in Regina, and uh, my friend Doug O'Brien would be uh, upset if I did not bring this one up. But um, there was a gig late '90s, 2000 maybe, of uh, in Regina. Do you know which one I'm talking about? The infamous kind of shoe gig, shoe gate. Shoe gate, yeah, shoe gate, yeah, right, yeah. Of course, we're gonna talk about that. I think it was earlier than 2000, though. It's gotta be nine. I mean, we didn't play a show in Regina after Shoegate. I think. <laughs> it was like, that was the last show we ever played in Regina. And that was like, basically had a grudge against the entire city of Regina. <laughs> so for the people who, who uh, don't know what we're talking about, uh, Matthew Goodman was playing Exhibition Park and um, some Yahoo drunken idiot threw a shoe on stage and it hit Matt Good, I guess, square in the head or something? or yep, Right in the face. I think he might have dropped some meth bomb yep. and walked off stage. Do I have this memory correct? Yeah. That's that's pretty much right, and I think we'd only played maybe half a dozen songs, this time, yeah. like maybe four or five songs. That's right. It was real early, yeah. And I think they tried to not pay us. They tried really? to not pay us the gig, yeah. But I think at the time, you know, I'd seen him get hit with stuff before. <laughs> we played a show in Toronto early on, actually, early on, like you know, probably ninety six, ninety seven, and we played a place called. Uh, Mel Lastman Square, which right. is like an outdoor space. It's not even really that big. It's kind of like, and I, I think we might have played to a couple hundred people. But somebody threw like a Hot Wheels car and hit wow. it in the face. Jeez. Which is way worse than a shoe. Absolutely. By the way. That could take an eye out, man. And, uh, and he just kept playing. Huh. So I think in the, in the time between the, that incident and the shoe incident, it was like, you can't do that. Like, he was basically, like, not going to take it. He wasn't, he was above getting hit in the head, <laughs> which, you know, fair enough. Yeah, but it shouldn't I, happen. It was kind of a drag, because, you know, when you drive 13 hours through the mountains to play, or whatever, not through the mountains, but, you know, like, it's like yeah. every city, you drive 12 hours between cities, exactly. and then you stop to play a show, and then you play four songs, you know, it's kind of a drag for us, too, right? So I just, I remember being disappointed. Yeah, what was the, the mood backstage between the guys? I mean, he just walked off, and you guys just said, okay. I mean, what was going through your mind when you see him walk off stage? And what was the, the kind of conversation between you four backstage? Do you remember anything about it? I feel like a lot of stuff that Matt did, we kind of would just look at each other and just kind of shrug, like, well, I can't do this <laughs> thing. You know, like, I don't know. You, what are you going to do? <laughs> Get back out there. Not good, you know? Like, yeah. I don't know. Like, that's not going to happen. No. And... It was just like, okay, you know, it's sort of one of those things. And I, I have actually seen other, I think on that Edge Fest, one of those Edge Fest tours, I saw the lead singer from Filter get hit in the head with a full water bottle. Wow. And it knocked the sunglasses off his head. Huh. And he said, hey man, nice shot. <laughs> and the name of their single. Well, and I was like, this is brilliant. You know, he put the sunglasses back on and just kept going. Wow. That's the way to do it, right? Yeah. And I just always kind of thought, like, from a, I, I always kind of felt like, you know, I came up from more of, like, having a love of performance, like, kind of, cl- 
classic performance etiquette type things. You yeah. Know? You should never let the audience know that you're pissed off, like, or that you've got, you know, that you got their goat or, you know, that they got your goat kind of thing. Like Matt should have been right into indestructible, you know, I'm indestructible. Exactly. Just keep going. Just keep going. That's right. If it, if it happens again, then walk off stage, you know? Exactly. Know. Then, yeah. I mean, I kind of almost think like, did the guy really try to hit Matt in the face with a shoe? I, it's hard to know. It's hard to know. Somebody must know the person that threw the shoe in Regina, right? I mean, it's not like... Uh, Somebody listening to this might be that person who threw the shoe. Yeah, we want to talk to that guy. Yeah, that guy, exactly. If you're that guy or that girl. want to know. We yeah. want to know. But the really funny thing is that we, we literally never played a show in Regina after that. That's amazing. That was it. Blackball, the whole entire city. That's amazing. Yeah. But you guys are cut off. That was it. <laughs> cut off and back good, yeah. Bad. Um We'll wind this down soon, but um, we've been talking a while, and we really haven't gotten into Beautiful Midnight, which is a huge record for a lot of people. Um, what are your memories of that album specifically? I think that I've heard in other interviews you've done that, um, surprisingly to a lot of people, that Hello Time Bomb was kind of almost an afterthought for that record. I think it really is basically like we had 10 songs, and somebody like, you know, uh, at the label or... Maybe even Warren was. I don't think it would have been Warren though. But somebody probably was like, "It would be great if there was one more clean cut, clear cut single." And on a kind of a challenge, taking the challenge, Matt basically, I think, said, "I am going to write the most poppiest single that I can write as a kind of fuck you to my label type of thing," which is wow. awesome <laughs> because he did write a great song, and it's yeah. not really necessarily that poppy. It's just, uh, but it's his idea of a hit song, really. Huh. Uh, and I just remember him kind of coming, like I say, he was kind of, it was sort of three quarters of the way there when we were kind of tinkering with it. And it was literally kind of in one of the last days that we were able to even do, because, you know, you record bed tracks, so drums are kind of your first priority. So the whole band plays, but you're really only recording the drums mainly, right? Right. So it was probably one of the last days of drum tracking, like that we were going to start working on guitars and things like that. So it was literally probably one of the last days that we were able to do it. And then he came in with it. And I do remember us working on the arrangement a little bit. And Warren was there. And huh. I'm pretty sure I contributed a chord because hmm. I was like, he had three chords of the chorus and it was so obvious. I mean, anybody could have, that chimp could have sort of figured that chord out, <laughs> you know what I mean? But, uh, and then, and then we just basically tracked it that day. So it's like super fresh and it's definitely one of the standouts. Like I would probably like use, you know, I would, I would say that would be in my top 10 favorite recording experiences because it was so fresh. I mean, that was one of the songs that we had not yet played live. We'd never played that one. That was just the studio thing. And then, uh, production wise, it was a little bit different and kind of felt a little bit more felt like a different direction somehow. What's that um, opening sound? That, that, that kind of, is like a bass guitar or something? That very, like the first few seconds or is like that? It's a bass guitar through a, a Sherman filter bank. Ah, oh, yeah. A filter, like an envelope filter type thing on it. And that was something Rich would have came up with or, or Warren or Matt? Or? It was Warren. Huh. I think, you know, obviously the song has got that da-da-da-da-da, that's the guitar yeah. doing that. Rich was playing that on the bass, and then some, somehow we decided that would be, we would start the intro with just the bass and the vocal, and then Warren applied that sound to the bass guitar to make it kind of more exciting. Oh, interesting. As an intro. I found me a reason So 
check me tomorrow We'll see if I'm leaking Pushing, pushing, push till it hurts My devil's on roller skates Down at the roller rink Picking up chicks for me Ones that push and push and push till it hurts Push and push till it hurts mentioned chimp um just a minute ago uh at that point matt good was prone to wearing a gorilla mask 
in in photo shoots and on stage briefly. Uh, what are your members of of that kind of part of his persona? I I, I kind of thought it was kind of cool. I thought it was kind of like I think he always wanted to kind of be a bit of a counter culture type figure. He always like idolized like Bill Bob Bob Dylan and right. You know, people that were sort of thumbing their nose at mainstream media and like or didn't want to play the promo game like it's a pretty distasteful thing to be i i kind of think of it now like you know that whole we're, we live in an era now where it's just like everybody's promoting themselves yeah but but he was almost like trying to kind of be like okay well we're, we're gonna do this photo shoot but you're not gonna see the same space kind of thing right which I think probably drove a lot of people crazy because obviously like you don't want to see a picture of the Matthew Good band and not see Matthew Good. You know what I mean? <laughs> but uh, for the rest of us, it's like, hey, it's great, you know? Yeah, exactly. Get to, it's like, oh, there's that guy who's not that good, and then there's somebody wearing a gorilla mask. But it was, uh, yeah, at least it, at least it was a cool mask. It was a cool mask, been, absolutely. Like, uh, so I'm not even sure where he found that, but I, yeah, I, I don't think I minded that so much. I thought it was kind of cool that it made it on the onto the cd i think it's on the cd it's on the cd and he also did a chart magazine shoot with that thing on it's beauty yeah yeah that's the one that i remember actually the chart magazine thing because we're in there too and and there's and then he's uh anyway but yeah he always he always kind of wanted to i mean he didn't show up to the junos right like it's the same kind of reason it was sort of like kind of like protest but then it's also kind of meant to generate a bit of kind of like discussion or so it's almost like a like a, a way to generate yeah. not bad but you know it starts a conversation rather than just another picture of a band or whatever and while we're on the uh topic of beautiful midnight what are some of your other uh favorite tunes off the record uh, like failing the rorschach test oh that's a great song and i miss new wave and i like the album tracks off beautiful midnight like the the deep cuts are kind of my favorite like they're sort of the most sonically interesting the drums are a little louder (laughs) Uh, I actually have to look at the album because I I honestly can't the funny thing about the vinyl versions too is that because we're they were never really intended to be on vinyl you end up with blank sides so like double album but like side four is blank or it's just smooth, like there's no grooves on it. Nothing I think it might be it might be Ghetto Astronauts actually that has the blank side, which I was like, oh, it's so funny. It's like three sides. <laughs> but uh, yeah, like let's get it on. I always liked that one. Future is X-rated. I always liked because it's uh, it that's a full take for me. Like there's no editing for the drums, and it's not on click, so I just played that one straight from beginning to end. Hmm. Giant. I mean, you know, Feels and Midnight's a really decent record, actually. You know, it's like. Uh, I kind of like everything that wasn't a single. Did it help now being the second time with Warren? Did you think that kind of improved the album? Like having that kind of shorthand? Yeah, I think, I think absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I think we, we got into a working relationship with him and knew. The cool thing about Beautiful Midnight, too, is that we knew there was going to be an audience. Like we mm. knew that there was going to be X amount of people were going to buy this record, no matter how bad it was. You right. know what I mean? Like it's yeah. kind of nice to know. It's nice and it's also pressure. Yeah. Like, but it's good pressure because you just know it's important now, like it's or it's important to somebody. It's just nice to know that you have an audience, like that you're going to release it. And it actually was exciting. Like it was exciting to feel like you go into the studio to make a record. And it's, it's, yeah, it, it, was, it was really great. And, and I think the production took a leap too. Like it, you know, the, 
underdog is a little bit scrappier. We're mm-hmm. a little bit more kind of green and beautiful midnight is like a lot more focused, I think from the playing and the produ- production and sounds a lot, you know, together.
one thing I was going to ask about um, going into Beautiful Midnight, coming off the success of Apparitions, um, are you getting kind of and now becoming you know part of a, a big you know big label now making the record as well, not just them picking up and distributing it, but do you feel the label being an influence on the band? I mean, are they asking for Apparitions Part Two, for example? Probably. I didn't really have a lot of those conversations because Matt was the was always getting that. I, whatever people were trying to get him to do, I guess they were trying to get him to do it. But I, you know, God help you if you're going to try to get Matt. To do it. <laughs> like, it, it would have to be a lot of like you know uh, reverse psychology or something like that <laughs> to try to get something. Yeah. Um, but I think he basically. I kind of always felt like what you know, like that song "Strange Dave." I always kind of thought was like an apparitions part two. Right. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, not quite as good, you know, but, uh, and it's six, but it's, you know, I think after you've had a big kind of power ballad type song, then it almost does become like, okay, what's going to be the power ballad on this album? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think there was definitely an idea that he was going to try to repeat the success of Apparition somehow, but I don't think it ever really, never really came up with another one quite like that. One kind of random question I had that's, um, you know, Matt has a tendency to sometimes write really long songs, like seven minutes plus. As a drummer, is that difficult to, um, the same process for you to do a three-minute kind of standard rock song as it is to do a seven-minute kind of opus? I mean, is it challenging? It is challenging for sure, because I think a lot of the time, I feel like most, any experiences I've had with playing a song that's over four minutes, I'm not always sure there's a reason why it's so long. Mm, interesting. Like a musical reason. Yeah. So it's easy to play songs where you can kind of, you can feel where the changes are going to happen because there's just a musical reason why it's changing there. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. I mean, and this is subjective, obviously, but I just, I've, I've, I've kind of, I've, I've managed to be involved in learning quite a lot of songs now because I've been playing for a long time, like quite a long time. So when you start learning a lot of different people's songs, you, know, you kind of like start to start to be able to, the ones that are easier to learn are the ones that kind of make, they just feel like you can tell where the changes are coming, right? Like right, the chords yeah. just start, it's natural. They, yeah. they lead you to a certain point and then they change and then you can, it just starts to become more second nature because it just feels natural to change there. But sometimes these seven minute long things, like you're sitting on one section and then you're counting bars and you're like, it, maybe it's like more lyrically driven or something. So it's, hmm. But I just never always really got the point. I, I don't know how many seven-minute songs I've played on where I thought, okay, that song definitely needs to be seven minutes. Most of the time, there's probably a three- or four-minute version that's better. <laughs> You're right, yeah. Fair. So I think Matt got into the... I think he, that was almost sort of a, a counter, you know, sort of a, a rebellious thing for him to not do single-length songs. Like, to right. basically do a song that now, you, if you wanted to put it on the radio, you either had to edit it or... But then, you know, like one of the cool things about pop music is that it is sort of trying to be exciting. Like it doesn't let you kind of, the arrangement is like, you know, bang, bang, bang. Like you never really let, uh, you're not given a chance to just languish on one part too long. Right. It's a, it's an arrangement thing, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I, I like, I like kind of longer arrangements of stuff, but I, I don't know, a seven minute long song, like maybe you could name me a few that you think are worthy of being seven minutes, but there are very few in the entire canon of music. I mean, classical is different. Yeah. I guess you could argue some jazz and that kind of thing. But, but as far as pop music, it's lyrically driven. That's just like verse chorus, bridge verse chorus. Like 
Nobody wants to hear a three-minute verse. <laughs> even even Bob Dylan, I think, basically, there's lots of hooks and like songs would be long, but there's a story, and it's actually a storytelling. Yeah, like a narrative or, that he's telling. Or, exactly, or, yeah. Or Gory Lightfoot, you know, like the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. I think that one's like seven or eight minutes, right? Yeah. So it's a story. Like you, you wouldn't be able to do it in four minutes because the guys hadn't drowned yet. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's it's like I think there's a, if it's a storytelling thing, then maybe that's that's the reason. But musically, I'm just like, holy crap! Like I don't know. Usually, it doesn't seem like there's much uh, reason to do it. Did you guys um, find you played those seven minute songs live that often? Like there was was there songs during the Matthew Goodbad era that you guys just would not play? Well, you know, I never was part of that era really. Like he didn't have many of those. Yeah, yeah. There's like one I think on Underdogs, maybe one on Midnight. Change of season off of Underdogs is seven minutes twenty seconds. It is. Wow. Well, see that one doesn't strike me as being that long actually. So I mean that's a good thing. <laughs> I mean he got Was there songs, though, that you guys wouldn't play or that's um, off a record that you guys never played live? Do you remember anything that was off limits? Absolutely. Yeah. There were songs that we wanted to play that he didn't ever want to play. I can't remember offhand. There was, there was probably a couple that he was just like never going to ever play again. Really? You know, people would always be telling him, you know, you got to play the singles. you got to play the, what the audience wants. Kind of right. Thing. So there might have been like a single that he didn't want to play anymore, you know, like yeah. Rico or something. I don't think we played a Rico more than once <laughs> yeah, I don't know like uh, Rico was sort of like I think a real kind of uh, cookie cutter type song right it was like kind of like an easy song from the right like it wasn't really coming from it. it's a bit of a you know just not as substantial as other songs right you mentioned reconnecting with Matt Good um, in 2010 2011 um, was that phone call a surprise to you that he called out reached out and asked you to come play some gigs yeah, it was it was a surprise. I mean, we'd only just seen each other a few months earlier for uh, for Jeff's uh, wake, mm. so it was like kind of within a year of Jeff passing, and we'd sort of made some contact. And I always felt like it was a bit of an un. It, it didn't really feel like a, a very well. It didn't conclude well for me. Like it, it always felt like unfinished business, you know, right. a little bit. So um, it, it it was nice. It, you, his band or his drummer or something, they wanted to go off and do another project. So he uh, called me and I, it was a lot of work though, actually. And then we didn't end up playing a lot of the songs that I had recorded. Like we ended up doing a lot of his solo stuff. So it, it was definitely, a, it was musically challenging mm. for me to learn all that stuff. And like I said, I had to make, I made very detailed drum charts that almost I could put in front of another drummer and they could play. Wow. You know, like that's how detailed they were. Did you notice the difference between um, 
the man and the musician, 10 years of difference, had passed? Absolutely, yeah, I did, yeah. It's, uh, he, like I was telling you earlier, like if we were, if he was in the room, it was like he was the center of attention. And I'm not saying that he was doing that intentionally. He's just a very um, highly, highly charged uh, individual and mm-hmm. just kind of has a hard time relaxing around. I think he's got social anxiety, like pretty heavily. Like he's a pretty anxious, high-strung guy, right? right? And uh, and I think he, did, he didn't feel relaxed in groups unless he felt like he was kind of kind of holding court, for lack of a better word. And and so this this tour, he could be quiet in a room full of people, and we would be having a conversation. I would be talking to the other people, and he would be sitting somewhere just listening. And that was that was a major change. Hmm, interesting. It was almost you know you know we wouldn't really be able to. It was just sort of a different different thing. I found out later that I mean he he did get diagnosed with some uh, anxiety and some mental health stuff, and he was on some medication, which I think was probably mm. why he was sort of his demeanor was so different. Right. It was interesting because I think like it probably makes it a lot more fun for him. Like he seemed like he was having a lot more fun. That's good. Because he was more relaxed and and had his group around him that there was no competition he was the boss right right before we kind of uh leave off the 90s we kind of touched on kind of the demise there of the matthew good band throughout the conversation it's kind of come up a few times so before we leave the decade um any kind of lasting memories of your time in the 90s and maybe any kind of legacy the kind of bands and artists of that uh, era kind of left behind for future canadian uh, musicians I'm not really sure that there was much of a legacy that we left no. behind music. I really kind of feel like it was uh, a bit of its time. Hmm. You don't really, I mean, you hear it on the radio a little bit here, but it's on classic rock radio, right? Which I think is kind of funny. I still really like hearing the songs. I, I do like hearing the stuff on the radio when it comes on, which gets less and less every passing year. So I don't really think it's got the, you know, compared to other groups, I'm not really sure who I would name check as being like something that's a little bit more, you know, that has stood the test of time a bit more. But I mean, it's, it's great to listen to, but mainly like probably the reason you like to listen to is because it reminds you of a time in your life being, you know, a teenager or being in your early twenties, like for me, like, uh, but it doesn't, it, I don't know. I don't want to like, I don't want to make it seem like it's not, good or anything because i do actually really like when i when i hear it i'm always kind of surprised at how good it is but i don't know if it's had the lasting impact of other some other artists you know what i mean like we're, we're going to be listening to it in another 20 years kind of thing i mean what you guys did i mean you guys and other people like the matthew good band was um you know the creation of the kind of canadian rock star really came to fruition in the 90s partly because of the music you guys would create and the stage persona i think and that kind of really I think that kind of thing might, you know, be part of that legacy that the music is also a part of. Yeah, it's interesting because I think, like, back in those days, we had, like, Alanis Morissette. Mm-hmm. And if you look at, like, we did, there was no Justin Bieber. I don't even think, well, there must have been a Celine Dion, but uh, there were always solo people. There were always solo people. And even now, I think there's kind of more solo people. Like, there's not really, I don't, I, I mean, you could probably tell me besides Nickelback, like, I, I'm always trying to tell, I'm trying to ask people if they know of any bands at all from any country that have <laughs> broken out of their home country in the last 10 years. Yeah. You know, more than just like playing clubs, you know, like where you get kind of a critical mass type thing. Like I always think about the strokes, 
as being one of the kind of last bands that I feel like really came out of. Yeah, that's fair. Killers. You know what I mean? And, and so yeah. it's like, yeah, the Killers. I mean, it's just sort of like we're not in a in a time right now of bands, really. You know what I mean? Like it's sort of uh, funny. I wonder if it'll come back. Like there's lots of bands, but they're just, they're not hitting the mainstream, right? So um, you've never stopped making music since um, you parted ways with Matthew Goodband. Um, you also recently released a solo single. Um, did you want to talk something about um, some new Loose Fang material? Or, or, do you, or do you want to talk about um, your new solo effort? I guess you're going to have to play my solo single because it's, it only took 48 years for me to write <laughs> for Loose Fang. Uh, but yeah, it's, it, it, was, it was like a huge milestone for me to do it because I've always just helped other people with their songs. And I think I've had more than one person say, well, yeah, why don't you do it then? Why don't you write a song? So finally I, I managed to get around to do it. But I, I've just gotten really into, into, you know, I've done a fair bit of sessions and I, I really enjoy recording. So I've been, in, I've been recording other groups and recording myself playing drums on other people's stuff remotely, especially in the last year or two. So uh, if anybody wants to hire a, a bona fide can rock drummer from the 90s on <laughs> your recording, you can send me your files. Um, and, uh, you know, and then I got like, you know, Loose Fang, we did a record with Howard Redekoff, who recorded you know, Tegan and Sarah and Mother Mother and stuff. And he, uh, that was really great. We, my friend Adam had a bunch of songs that we jammed for, for about a year. And then we decided that we would go and make a record and uh, it turned out really great. And so that we have, it hasn't actually been released officially, I don't think. So there's, but there's singles on Spotify that are, and the whole record is great. I can, that's supposed to come out, but it's just, I think, COVID basically started on that project. But, uh, but what's the uh, name of the uh, solo single? And how long has it been around? A little background on the tune, if you will? I do quite a lot of work with this guy, Pierce Kingan, who is a songwriter, another really prolific songwriter. So he, he was trying to write basically an EP every month. Huh, wow. And we were recording it like really quick and banging them off and getting them on Spotify. I think we recorded like 25 songs last year, oh, wow. like in just in 2021. <laughs> and uh, at one point he was like, I'm going to take this month off. I'm not going to record anything. But I had just only set up, I was recording in my apartment actually until, well, it was, it was working out pretty great except that it wasn't sustainable for obvious reasons. Uh, but I, so I moved into a new space and set up all my recording gear. And that was the month that he was going to take a month off. And I was like all poised to record something, you know, I had all the mics set up and like, you know, I'm like, mm-hmm. all I need is a song basically, right? Like somebody's song. I, you know, there's, there's lots of people with songs, but for some reason I said, well, okay, I'm going to, I'll, I'll just, I'll just bang something off here. Huh. I'll pick up the guitar. I play a bit of guitar and a little bit of piano. So I just like, you know, came up with something, really quickly basically and then just kind of took it to this took it to my space put some drums on it and i was noodling around with some vocals and then i i, I got my buddy to play bass on it and my other friend to play guitar on it and then i just was trying to do it really fast because uh pierce this guy that i work with we're just always trying to just without thinking of like before you start to overthink it you just do it and then you get it out and and then you just if it doesn't sound great you just do better for the next one right yeah but uh, but this one turned out pretty good, so I just like you know I just tried to do it as quickly as possible. I think I wrote it in July, and it was done by the end of August. Oh wow! And uh, and then it was on Spotify in September, and and there it is. It's just the one song. Like, there may be another one. Hopefully, it won't have to wait another forty eight years. <laughs> but 
it's just, uh, it's really more just for myself, really. But uh, people seem to like it, and, and it's kind of fun. We play it live with uh, with Pierce uh, when we do shows with Pierce. Oh, we do awesome. that, and I, I, I sing and play from behind the drums. Oh, nice. It's really fun, actually.
Final question. Now, uh, I have a playlist on Apple and Spotify of all 90s can rock. So I'm asking all the guests to contribute uh, three songs to the playlist, two singles, and one deep cut. So how would you like Matthew Goodband's 90s material to be represented on the playlist? Okay, well, I think one of, one of the ones that I think I always feel like you have to put on there is Symbolistic White Walls because mm. it's uh, kind of the beginning, I think. Mm. Uh, and then, but I, but I, you know, it's it's maybe not the most sonically exciting. It's hard to pick these. <laughs> yeah, agreed. Yeah. Uh, so the deep cut, the deep cut, I would, I will say, let's go with uh, Stealing the Rorschach Test. Ah, oh, nice. Love that song. And uh, the other single, you know, Hello Time Ball. Mm. Or or uh, or um, let's let's say let's say. Hello, Time Bomb's on Beatles of Midnight, right? So yeah, it is, yeah. Let's just forget about Symbolistic White Walls. We'll forget about Symbolistic White Walls, even though I really like... Okay. I still can't believe how we recorded that song, because it's basically live. I mean, it's kind of crazy. But uh, let's go with, with Everything is Automatic and Time Bomb, and then Deep Cut and Rorschach Test. Um, any memories of uh, recording Rorschach? That was like just, you know, we were, I think, really firing on all cylinders. Mm. And like Warren was getting some insane sounds from, from the drums. Like I still think about what he was doing. Like I was telling somebody the other day that recording drums with Warren was like you'd never heard the drums before. Like uh-huh. it was like sitting at the drums and putting the headphones on. And every microphone is like absolute, the most incredibly, the top end of every piece of equipment connected to, you know, like the best microphone on two crazy eqs and compressors and stuff and then coming back into your head so that when you hit the snare it's like you could hear the dust rising off you know <laughs> just like the level wow. of detail was so insane and then like the layers of compression and stuff like it's just the drum sounds he was getting on that record were just outrageous like i still don't know how he how he was doing it wow so i, I still take a lot of inspiration from from his his engineering of that instrument especially like huh. and him as a producer i just think it's just like totally unique sounding and I think that some of the songs that uh, performance wise, I think I'm pretty happy with a lot of Beautiful Midnight as far as the drumming goes. Like it, it just probably, you know, I, I, I don't really understand how I came up with some of the parts that I did for that stuff. And that, that's, it, I don't know if I could do it now. Huh. Like it's just so left center, outside the box thinking, right? We were always mm-hmm. trying to do something kind of a little bit different. But sometimes, you know, Matt would come with a song and it would be a little bit stock sounding sometimes. So mm-hmm. we would be trying to make it sound as odd and weird as possible. Interesting. And uh, so I, I, it would be hard for me to like, if somebody said like, make the wackiest drum part you can, that's like, or something that's just unusual. It's uh, after years and years of just trying to kind of fit in and not really steal focus. I'm not sure I could manage some of the stuff that he's doing. That's pretty bold. Some of it, like it, yeah, I think there's a couple on Beautiful Midnight that you could pick, like Miss New Wave. We always really liked that one, and, uh, you know. But but Rorschach Test just when I heard it last, I was like, oh, that sonically is just so good. It it just you know the drums are really up front, and it, it's a cool song. It's got teeth. Excellent. Well, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me about your experience in the '90s, man. It's been fantastic. Hey, thanks for the questions. That's really really fun, actually. I really uh, appreciate the uh, interest. Thank you so much for joining us today on Raven Drool. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can do so in a variety of ways. First, you can go to patreon.com slash rave drool, become a patron, get access to deleted audio, 
Get advance notes of the guests and get a chance to submit questions to those guests for an exclusive Patreon Q&A. Visit redbubble.com, search Rave Drool, and you can buy various goods with the Raven Drool podcast logo on it. Follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to this. And if you listen to this on Apple Podcasts, please give us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more 90s camera rock content, please find us on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and Instagram. And lastly, if you're looking for music, we have an official playlist on Apple and Spotify. Currently, it's curated by myself with tracks that I've selected, but as you heard during today's episode, eventually, it'll be curated by the guests themselves. Until next time, friends, take care.